You might think, oh, I, I want to be great, but I could never be great. But actually, we can all become great. Truly, all of us can be great. And God wants us to be great. God wants us to pursue greatness. I believe that we all want to accomplish something great, uh, great and, and we want to be that great. This morning, we're, we're going to be about this short series <clears throat> about pursuing greatness, and we'll learn how to become and be truly great. And in this series, we're going to be uh, going to read the words of a man who was great, telling another man who had the potential to be great about how to be great. But this morning, we need to start with some of the basics, and I'm sure we won't finish this, uh, this whole sermon here, but, but the, this morning, we need to start with the basics of greatness. And to do that, we learn from the greatest man ever, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. Mark 10, 35 to 45 is the passage that I've landed on. This passage in the, uh, the Apostle, part, Apostle Mark's record uh, of Jesus' ministry tells us of something that two of Jesus' 12 apostles did that almost led up to the breakup of the sometimes merry band of disciples before they had even finished their training with Jesus. And here's what happened. Mark 10, 35 to 45. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. How about that? We want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give. But it is for those whom it has been prepared. Scriptures go on to say, hearing this, the ten, that would be the other disciples, began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now that's bold, isn't it? Isn't that bold? Who would ask such a thing so straightforwardly? If anyone would, it would be James and John. According to Mark 3.17, Jesus named them, of course you may have known, Jesus named them the sons of thunder. That being so, have, have you ever pictured in your mind the Jesus, that Jesus' disciples were kind of wimpy? They actually weren't. They, they, you'd have to think again about them. As we'll see in a moment, these were self-confident guys, type A personalities, aggressive, competitive, bold. Twice in the gospel, we read about Jesus having to rein in these two for getting away ahead of themselves, being too bold. 
In one of those instances, they were wanting to call down fire from heaven to consume from fo- uh, some folks who were a little unfriendly toward Jesus. So asking Jesus such a request as this was perfectly in character for these two at this time in their spiritual development. They still had a lot to learn, and they still needed to grow in Christ-like character. Their request was bold, and it gave a hint that what they were about to ask was not really appropriate. See that in verse 36 of, of that passage. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What a question, right? He, Jesus, said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus was no fool. He did not tell them that he would give them what they wanted. They said to him, grant that we may sit, one on your right, one on your left, in your glory. What exactly did that mean? What were they asking for? Well, they wanted positions of of highest honor and highest authority when Jesus exercised his power as Lord and conquered his enemies and establishing his kingdom on earth. They thought wrongly that that was going to happen very soon and they wanted to be his top commanders when it all went down. Previously, you see, Jesus had told the uh, entire 12 disciples that they would have special roles uh, when his kingdom was established. And James and John, along with Peter, had just recently been selected by Jesus to go on a special journey with him. So these two guys, James and John, were feeling very good about themselves. And evidently they thought they were more worthy than the others. Verse 8 there says, But Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? When Jesus here spoke of drinking the cup and being baptized, he was not speaking of literally drinking from a cup or literally being baptized in water. Drinking a cup was an Old Testament idiom that referred to fully experiencing something, usually trouble and suffering. Being baptized was another way of referring to getting the full experience of something. It meant being fully submerged into an experience, such as undergoing a baptism of fire, as the saying goes. Jesus, of course, was referring to the difficulties he was already experiencing in his life from those who opposed him, and also he was speaking of his upcoming arrest and his torture and his humiliation and the crucifixion at the hands of his enemies. That was the price he was paying and was going to pay to accomplish his ministry and establish his kingdom. Are you able to handle that, Jesus was asking? They said to him, we are able. They didn't have a clue what Jesus was talking about. And what they were saying was, yes, yes to that. Yes, I, I want that. Just earlier he had told the disciples of his crucifixion, he didn't, but they didn't pay any attention. They were hanging on to dreams of battle glory and great victories soon to come and victories they thought would be achieved by the exertion of great effort and pain and loss, but not involving such incredible lifelong hardship. So they said, well, yes, Jesus, we can handle that. We're willing. Verse 39 in this passage says, Jesus' answer was, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptism. Jesus was not kidding. He was foretelling what would happen to them. And that indeed took that place. After Jesus' resurrection and the establishment of 
the church, the apostles experienced some of the same sort of opposition and persecution that Jesus faced. James, according to Acts 12.1, was put to death at, uh, at the command of Herod the king, the first of the apostles to, to die of his faith. John lived a long life, but also a persecuted life. He spent his last years in exile on the island of Patmos. They did indeed drink the cup. Verse 40, Jesus says, uh, verse 40 uh, was, was Jesus, uh, his word for them. He said, but to sit on my right or on my left, that is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Jesus continued uh, with his answer to James and John, his verses 39 and 40. Jesus said, you will drink the cup. You wanted it, you've asked for it, you will drink the cup. Those who would have those positions that James and John wanted would be decided by God the Father, not Christ the Son. I can't fulfill your request, Jesus was saying. That's not to be decided here and now. I can't promise you that, Jesus was saying. But he did have something valuable for them, a lesson. A lesson for all the disciples. Hearing this, verse 41 says, the ten began, the ten, that'd be the ten disciples, then began to feel indignant with James and John. We don't know how hard they, uh, uh, we don't know how they heard all of this. But when the ten other apostles did it, they were very mad at James and John for going behind their backs to Jesus and trying to nab some high positions by getting a jump on them with their request to Jesus. Note here, they were not righteously angry that James and John were falling short of the appropriate character of an apostle of Christ. But they were mad that James and John were trying to cut them out. And they were jealous because they had the same selfish ambition and the childish rivalry as James and John. We know that for sure because Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that earlier they were arguing with each other about which one of them was the greatest. And Jesus had to step in and put a stop to that bickering. And now they were back at it again, and and Jesus once again had to step in. Beginning at verse 42, it says, Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it's not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Notice that Jesus didn't so much scold them and discipline, but rather he used this opportunity to teach them, specifically about greatness. And we, uh, through the scripture, get the benefit of that teaching too. And the first thing we learn from Jesus about greatness is that it's okay to pursue it. It's okay to pursue greatness. That, in fact, it is good to pursue greatness. Some might think it's wrong for a Christian to pursue personal greatness, but Jesus indicates otherwise. Notice he gives his instructions here in verses 43 and 44, saying, whoever wishes to become great and whoever wishes to be first among you. So clearly it's not wrong to pursue greatness. Rather, it's good. However, Jesus also teaches here that the pursuit of greatness is only good and worthy if we're pursuing true greatness rather than false greatness. True greatness rather than false greatness. What's the difference between the two? 
First of all, true greatness, greatness is greatness as defined by God. False greatness is greatness defined by the world that has, God, that has gone astray from God. False greatness is generally believed in by the world, accepted by the world, promoted by the world, pursued by the world. Unfortunately, many of God's people and followers of Jesus Christ go along with the world about false greatness. False greatness is the attainment of high position, power, and typically also possessions and wealth, and the honor and the glory and the admiration, adoration, and countless fringe benefits that come along with all of that. Attain, attain those things, and typically the world says, you know what, you're great. You are so great. And the one who has it agrees and says, I'm great. I'm great. Not always, but very often, false greatness is a product of personal ambition, pride and the, the drive to be respected, to be admired, to be popular, and to control others as well as to be served by others. Unfortunately, that means that false greatness is often attained and, and held by an overfocus on oneself, lack of concern for others, and even by gaining at the expense of others well-being and good. Jesus said here that false greatness is exemplified by the ruler of Gentiles. By Gentiles, Jesus didn't mean merely non-Jews. Rather, the term referred to the pagan nations that did not know God or respect God or worship God. The rulers of the Gentiles are those who have attained position, power, possession, by sheer ambition, and they exercise their power. Jesus said that they lord it over them. They have grabbed their power, and they use it to their advantage and for themselves. They are one example of false greatness. But interestingly, Jesus showed another example of false greatness. False greatness, he revealed, is also sometimes exemplified by followers of Christ who sometimes even unwittingly pursue fake greatness. For example, uh, James and John. It's easy in this instance to pinpoint their faults, but let's not overlook their good qualities. They were from good families and were good family men. They were honest. They were hardworking, small businessmen. They were worshipers of God. They'd already left everything behind to answer Jesus' call to ministry. They were passionate about obeying and serving God. And even as they came asking Jesus for high places in his kingdom, they showed their faith and their loyalty. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah who would be victorious someday, and they were committed to going to battle with him. But they got sucked, in, uh, sucked into the, the lie of false greatness and were starting to pursue it. James and John are great reminders that false greatness may also be exemplified by true members of God's family who buy into the lie of the world about, uh, about greatness. We must all be careful. False greatness, we have said, is false because it is greatness defined by the world rather than greatness defined by God, the creator of the world. It's also false because one may be falsely great and yet not fulfill the purpose for which we were created, which is to glorify him and serve him and serve others in his name. It's also false then because it receives no honor from God the greatest being in the universe, for it doesn't in any way reflect him nor reveal who he is. It's false greatness because it's temporary only and has no effective lasting value. It has no eternal significance. It neither impacts our own eternal rewards nor 
makes an internal difference in the life of others. So what is greatness? Well, Jesus reveals here that true greatness has nothing to do with attaining position, power, prominence, prestige, possessions, or any of their associated benefits. Now you may attain those and also be truly, but none of those things are requirements for greatness. Anyone may be great no matter what they are, where they are, or where their status may be. Because true greatness is all about Christ-like character and Christ-centered service. The falsely great, Jesus said, selfishly seek after position, powers, possessions, prestige. And when they gain that, they use it to their own advantage. But the truly great, Jesus said, do the opposite. They do not seek position, power, possessions, and prestige for their own advantage, but for the good of others and to the glory of God. Verses 43 and 44 we read, but it is, uh, Jesus said, but it is not this way among you, at least it should be, but it is not this way among you, guys, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Do you want to be great, Jesus says? Be a servant of others and a slave of all. These two words, as Jesus used them in this instance, were practically synonymous, and there's a Difference, but there is a difference between the two, and that difference would not have been lost on those who heard Jesus that day. The word servant originally referred to one who did basic labor, who worked at the lowest level of hired help, doing unskilled work for the lowest pay. In short, doing the tiresome, difficult, and unpleasant work no one really aspired to do. The word slave, on the, on the other hand, referred to someone of even lower rank, to one who did not even belong to himself or work for himself. Rather, he belonged to a master and labored only for that master. By using those two words, servant and slave, together, Jesus emphasized that the truly great are those who serve others. Others come first. Great ones are servers. By including, uh, including the word slave in addition to servant, Jesus emphasized that the truly great are those who live, not for themselves, but for others. Others come first. Great ones put others first. True greatness, then, is the opposite of what the world considers greatness to be. We won't mention about politics. Just look at TV and see this. True greatness, then, is the opposite of what the world considers greatness to be. It's not about attaining and achieving for oneself, but about helping others to attain and achieve. It's not about being self-serving, but about being self-giving. It's not about commanding others and receiving from them. It's about coming alongside others and doing things for them. It's about voluntary self-sacrifice, the outpouring of ourself in service to others for the glory of God. Why is that true greatness? Because it reflects the character of God and how he has acted toward us. Because when we live in this way, we fulfill our purpose. Because the way we live makes an eternal difference in the lives of others as we help them and point them to God and in our own lives because God does reward the truly great. So where do you stand today? Are are you truly great? Possibly you're you're not at all great by the world's standards, but you are great by God's standard. Be encouraged because you are truly great. Don't believe otherwise. Probably you've achieved and are considered great by the world, but You are great by God's standards, too. So be encouraged. Be careful. Keep pursuing God's greatness above all. 
Possibly you say, I'm not great by either standard. Well, guess what? You can change that. You can change that. Make that choice to pursue true greatness. Possibly you say, I I realize I'm only great by the world's standards. Well, you can change that too. One thing that stands out here is how patient God is with us and how he wants us to grow spiritually. He did not reject James and John. Instead, he corrected them and he taught them. But Jesus made it very clear that whole greatness is possible. It's just that we must choose it. We must choose it. And that begins choosing humility before God. Do you remember me saying that before this incident here in Mark 10 that the disciples had an earlier time arguing among themselves about who was great? That time, Matthew 8, 20, uh, 18, 2 and 4, I should say, he called the child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Greatness begins, Jesus says, when we become humble before God as a child is humble. That is, when we would believe in God and trust in God and stop living as if the world revolves around us instead of around God. We must turn from self-centeredness and from being self-serving and surrender ourselves to God. That's really number one. Having done that, we must then reject pursuing worldly greatness and choosing uh, greatness and choose humility before men and sacrificial service to others. Listen to Philippians 2, beginning with verse, uh, that would be verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness of empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There are choices before us today, and this is where for many of us begin, or we begin, or we begin again until we really get it, until we really get it. It's a choice we have to make, a choice that had to make. Many years ago, I was, uh, was flying, not without uh, wings, of course. Many years, I, I was flying from uh, Boise to Salt Lake City and then home to uh, Silicon Valley, where I was living at that time. The, the middle leg of the flight, uh, the flight uh, was in Salt Lake City. And it was a small airport at that time. And it was just people all around. and. Everybody was going back and forth, and it was hard to figure out where to go and what to do. And uh, eventually, I jumped on an airplane and uh, found my seat. And then the, uh, the uh, I guess they call stewardesses at that time. <laughs> at that time, that's what they were called. The attendant on the airplane was counting the passengers and came up with one too many of us on the plane. 
guess who was the one? <laughs> she checked my ticket and found I was on the wrong flight. It would not have mattered much how much I enjoyed that flight. At the end of the journey, I would have found myself in the wrong place. Pursuing greatness will be unique for each of us, but we need to be to the right destination, on board the right vehicle, and that will happen when you take Jesus' words to heart and pursue greatness by coming like him. It's a choice. It's a choice we make, and one we should choose carefully, lest we get on the plane, the wrong plane. I think it tells us today, take a little time. Take a little more time about who you are, what you're doing, what you're doing for God. Take a little time. Choose the best, the very best. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this portion of Scripture that perhaps we know it well, but have not been really thinking about it well. We know, Lord, that there are so many who are pursuing greatness in so many different ways these days. But real greatness only comes around with you, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, we, we pause again to make the right choice at the gate rather than getting on the wrong plane. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you in your, your name.